Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Pocket Rocket podcast. Um, very, very special episode today. Obviously, always here with my sidekick Mads, but we are also joined by Mr. John Jewett. Hello, ladies. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you very much for joining us, John. Um, we um, were very excited about this and had a lot of kind of interaction and questions regarding what we're about to talk about. So, yeah, super excited to have you. So thank you very, very much. Um, I don't really think much introduction is needed. Um, I think if if someone doesn't know you, then um, they must be new to the sport because uh, you are one of the leading educators and also an IFBB pro yourself. Um, but I don't want to butcher your introduction, so I'll spin that over to you just to give a little bit of an introduction to yourself so people can learn about who you are and your background. Yeah, well, that's kind of you. I, uh, I, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a little popular in certain areas, like in small, in small segments, <laughs> right? But um, in, in case, yeah, you're not familiar, um, yep, John Jewett, I uh, started out my career, like, going through, like, getting a, becoming a registered dietitian, and that was kind of where I worked, like, clinically in the hospital, and alongside that also bodybuilding along the way and um becoming a, a pro and competing in the 212 now and done the olympia three times and continue to grow the coaching side along with that so I, i'm a bro like i got into training um because I, I love just throwing iron around but also have a nerdy side where i i've read intensively of trying to learn how to better myself and better the people that i coach to where you kind of get in the weeds and all this stuff and you learn a lot of the the whys behind it all. And I like to share all those whys. And that that's kind of led me to where I am now, um, educating and educating coaches, but also just um, trying to try to elevate the sport in general, because it's uh, in, in the past, it was hard to come across like quality coaching. And now it's, you're, you're pretty exposed now, like the coaching game is, has very much elevated. But um, as far as the, the female side goes, I've, I've always had female clients. Um, and you get into coaching females not knowing how much there really could be involved. I think there's just we could be a bit naive at times um, until you start running into these issues that that just like are roadblocks. You're like, wow, what is going on? So that uh, that continues to have to make you hone your craft or or you just don't. And that's when you see a lot of females that are getting coached like they're like they're little men. And yeah you eventually get those clients on the back end of a lot of issues that have cropped up. And uh, then when I started coaching my wife, Renee, like she's, she's a wellness pro. It's like, you, you want like, of course I want to do always right by my clients, but you know, for her too, like I, I want to coach her without any, like any risks and also seeing the best for her health long-term and in the short term. So that's when, we we actually the first female I actually started using what we'll talk about today I guess is t uh, testosterone with and this was a, this was a few years ago but that's uh the I guess not the really I don't feel like that was a short version but that's in a nutshell I guess who I am. Yeah, thank you for that, John. I think um, that was one thing I was going to touch on was that a conversation we had was that kind of introduction to the female bodybuilding and that the module you've just released on J3U about female bodybuilding and all of the things or some of the things that we're going to talk about today and how that kind of was sparked initially by coaching Renee and obviously wanting the best for her not just for her health but obviously for her bodybuilding journey and trying to get the most out of that I think that's that's really important it's quite special as well that you're in that position 
Yeah. Um, and, and like y'all have your own personal joy, journeys of how you've had to do like hormone restoration. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to speak too much for Renee. I mean, she's a pretty much open book. We share all this stuff on, on J3U, but, uh, you know, at that time, like she wasn't planning on competing. The wellness division came out like, well, well, let's just check lab work. Like she's never had like really regular cycles and also, um, had like anxiety and also some just mental struggles that were going along. So we're like, well, let's investigate like the hormone side at the time she was on like a hormone birth control as well, get labs tested and testosterone's less than, you know, 25 nanogram per deciliter, which I know y'all are like on different units. I think it's less than 0.8 nanomolar per, per liter, which um, in a clinical setting, you know, you'd say that would be like, androgen insufficiency for a female and now she is on birth control so that's the idea of birth control is to basically castrate hormonal function and suppress ovulation so that is what should have been seen on those labs but also seeing that or like well this might go along along the lines of what you're what you're feeling too and that's when we decide okay well hormonal birth control in place and also renee is like over 30 the idea of restoring testosterone levels back up to a physiological norm are, are, are pretty much lower. And that's when we made the decision to move in testosterone therapy. And um, yeah, coming across that, you're like testosterone in females. It used to be like, no way. That's, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Like that's mm-hmm. going to, that, that is a male hormone. Yeah. And uh, the very interesting thing about it is that actually, testosterone is 10 times higher than estradiol in in females it's actually the predominating female hormone so you you say like what's the female hormone you're like oh yeah estrogen right well actually like females produce way more testosterone than they do estrogen on like a this nanomolar basis um but comparatively to a male yes like males have far exceeding levels of androgens so to say like well this is an important hormone to females it would be short-sighted because females do have so much of it present that they are producing. So if you have that, I guess that's where the, the cutoff in the, in the literature and, and where you see a lot of controversy is at least for deploying testosterone in a female from a clinical side, you have to say it needs to be to treat a condition. And that's where like a lot of the subjective things that we come across, like well-being or anxiety, depression, um, libido, it's hard to pull out that those are actual clinical things you need to treat mm. um, and because a lot of it could be like, well, maybe you need to make sure you focus on the the psychological side and, and that aspect. Um, but, you know, that's not always the case and testosterone could could aid in those areas. So right right now, like um, usually you'll see prescriptions for testosterone for um, like hyposexual disorder in like postmenopausal females. And even like in the U.S., like FDA prescriptions, there's nothing for females. It's all for males. So the dosing is just titrated down. Um, But for any other conditions, as far as um, these kind of off-label uses, they're um, not as far validated by like the FDA to be used for. But it's a lot of subjective like um, feedback as well for, for females to kind of elicit this treatment. Um, even for males, like a, a low testosterone isn't indicative for treatment. It has to be also associated with conditions that would be for low testosterone too. Um, 
Now that's not how how it's actually prescribing. I think we've come a long way. I think we're just like behind for female research toward the actual um, deployment. Yeah, I think um, something that we've kind of touched upon with other guests that we've have on, had on, and something that I, in my own experience, funnily enough, had a, a conversation with my specialist yesterday, and um, I asked the question about the use of testosterone in women and how that aromatizes into estrogen and, and would that be used not not just for a woman at my age but also a woman who is menopausal um like you say there's all those things where you're looking at uh, cognitive health and uh, brain function libido all of those sorts of things that start to deteriorate it's not implemented whereas if a man who was in his 50s or 60s went into the doctors and said I'm feeling depressed and I have no libido and all this sort of stuff. They go, oh, OK, that's because of your testosterone. Um, and then they probably look at running a TRT. But it's, it's kind of weird that we're still in this state where we're not being treated the same. It's, there's not that same kind of thought process around medical intervention. Yeah, there's a I mean, I, I've talked to OBGYNs that they're like go-to to treat every females like with birth control and there's little understanding of you know hrt or estrogen progesterone replacement testosterone replacement um a, a lot are not on board with that and you have to find some pretty like progressive doctors that un understand and want to take the time to really work through those because it, it is a harder work through than just ignoring it and say oh that's in your head just take a ssri um mm. or here's your birth control uh then then going through through that route um and and yeah just those are like great other aspects of your point i think now that we're in this more like progressive area in medicine i think we'll see more data coming out for females and there i mean testosterone in females has been used since like the 1940s like pellets were around in that time and we do see like androgen receptors are all over the body. So I know we just think about muscle, but yeah, the heart, kidneys, brain, um, all those areas can have benefit. And with, uh, it, you know, may have a benefit around uh, bone health long-term. I know we, we think about estrogen in that capacity, but absolutely like bone has androgen receptors. Um, you have these things called osteoblasts that are important for bone formation. So it might have a protective role around that. I mean, we see like in, in men with low testosterone, you have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, potentially like Alzheimer's and, and dementia. Same very well could be for females as well. I think the thing around it, too, is like, well, you know, what, what are the negative what are the negatives? Like, is there a risk, though, to using uh, TRT in, in mm -hmm. these like conditions? And um, I think we can look to the extreme for one um, when you have a female to male transgender patient and the risk for like increases in mortality breast cancer vascular disease it's um no problems are reported with within those patients now that is a newer area uh, of research but that's the extreme right now for like females and staying within normal physiological limits there it's it's hard to make a case that there's adverse effects even there's some pretty long trials looking at um breast cancer and showing like a 40 percent reduction in breast cancer for women using testosterone therapy um because initially like when these androgens came out 
testosterone was to treat females for estrogen related breast cancer and trying to offset estrogen with testosterone. Um, now that it's kind of a mess because just like you were saying, Hannah, like testosterone aromatizes to estrogen. So that's when other steroids came out that were more female friendly to treat, treat women. Um, so, you know, absolutely like testosterone can have a role in not causing breast cancer, but actually reducing the, the risk. So there, there absolutely is risk reduction that could be involved there. Um, now effects that, you know, could be negative. Yeah, it, it, there could be, but I think that's where we have to talk about dosing regimens and making sure we are not moving into hype, like super physiological territory. Cause that we at least have in the U S is there's an actual over prescription of testosterone at high dosages and just, um, me- methods that wouldn't be best either. Um, I, th- I think that's a good valid point. I think especially in the UK, um, there isn't a lot of, like Hannah said, there's not a lot of implementation of this if you go through, like we have the National Health Service, which is, you know, it's it's our health service in the UK. This isn't something they would look at. Um, Hannah went to them with with her issues and the blanket is like a HRT or a combined pill, for example, like, oh, well, this will control things so you'll feel better. Mm. Now, privately, you can, um, you can, get help and it is in the form of pellets but it is quite hard it's very 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 expensive the yeah. dosing is like here's a pellet it'll last you six months and then it's it's a bit a little bit traumatic as well because they insert it like it's, it's a little bit different and there's there's not a lot of like education around this and I think one of the the scare the scary things that people see or think they see is like oh well there's this negative around testosterone in women because they don't know a lot because it's not mm. talked about a lot there is not a lot of also not a lot of like anecdotal evidence to say this this and this but what we do have is evidence for using this in like you say the transition from female to male individuals and if they're using this at a higher dose to actually bring on say the viralization side effects that they want and we can see in those studies that are fairly new but there is evidence there to say okay well if they're not achieving certain side effects and actually what we're seeing in those people are that things are positive and there's there's not negative side effects you know we're looking at, at keeping people in an around physiological range which is potentially around you know what 10 times less potentially of the dose that you may be looking at when you're looking at a transgender patient or client or person so we can use that as good evidence to say actually the risks are very low mm. and actually potentially very positive sometimes yeah you're exactly right and i think we also need to then you, you talk about like the physique realm, like, like, cause that is the focus and probably a lot of your listeners, right? Like there, there is a one aspect around, you know, what, what are the health indications here? Like for long-term, like, is this going to benefit my health? Is it going to hurt my health? But then we also have physique goals and um, how does it fit within that? And just like for anyone, for anyone listening to like, what is low, what is high, like for a female, like, you know, low is that 0.87 nanomolar per, per liter, um, around like that 2.8 nanomole per liter is like a really good spot, I would say, to be for a female that wants to be on like a higher end of normal. Like where I won't take females is above that 3.5 nanomolar per liter or 100 nanogram per deciliter if you're in the other units. And, you know, to give some relation, like a male is typically in that like eight to up to like 30 nanomolar per liter 
we even see like, you know, PC, uh, women with PCOS can go up for like all the way up to 4.8 nanomolar per liter. And in those females, we see like androgen traits could be happening, like hair growth and acne and other masculinizing side effects. So it's like you go to that range where it's still within normal uh, female limit, and that's where you don't go beyond. Now, going beyond that is absolutely where you could run into those risks. And we absolutely do see like in uh, in female athletes, like the higher testosterone levels are correlated with increased like muscle mass, strength, and speed. So absolutely like higher testosterone female will have like performance benefits for athletes. And especially if you're in, in like a physique competition for muscle mass and body fat as well. Um, what, what you're bringing up Mads about the dosing is like, uh, we see testosterone pellets somewhat, um, at least when I come across them, usually that's more like general lifestyle clients that just don't want to have to do like shots every day or something. Mm-hmm. Um, problematic around that though, is that it's really hard to titrate dosages. So I, I had uh, a friend of mine that had her levels checked after she had her pellet started and she was like 400 uh, nanogram per deciliter, which is, is, is a male range. It's like, what do you do then? It's mm. like, Oh uh, man, like you have to, you can't take that out. Um, so you have to wait for the effects to like uh, titrate down. The other one we see is like the cream, yeah. um, which is a little, it's definitely less invasive. Um, I, I realize like the, there's a barrier to entry with injections for females, so the cream, I have some females that have utilized. The only issue with the cream is that it has a, a really short, like quick C-max. So um, time to peak concentration, it's like two hours. So you get a quick climb in testosterone and then it drops down relatively quickly. So it's harder to get this steady state level. And that's what I think for risk reduction for females, what you'd really want. You want a, a very stable testosterone level without peaks and valleys. And that's where I really think like injectable testosterone is a more ideal route. Um, and I think as a competitor, hey, if you're going into HRT, like you're going to be competing in, in um, non-drug tested federations. And that's also where you're also opening the box to all other PDs. So we have individuals who are pretty promptly ready to do injections, but not all the time. And that's, I think, a perception like that the oral route or a transdermal route is is safer, but it it's really might not be the case. I think in testosterone's case, you could have a risk reduction with using testosterone, even sub, more so sub-Q for a female, um, because you have less, even less uh, peaks that way too. So you have very stable levels. So it, um, what would be probably be more ideal if we're looking at routes of delivery and an ability to adjust dosage quickly if anything wants to happen um, issue wise with it i think there's a couple of good points there i think the first one was about like the levels of testosterone in women and obviously when you get tests in the uk the general range is usually that they give you and we're talking in animals here so yeah. apologies um yeah. american freedom units as luke likes to call it but we um, we we see like the range being given of about like 0.29 to about 1.79 something like that in animals mm-hmm. now for a physique athlete i think something that we need to understand as well for people who are reading these buds for example is like okay, that is a range for a and in inverted commas like normal person and we need to understand that a 60 kilo female for example who isn't an athlete 
has probably got a lot less muscle mass than somebody who is 60 kilos that is an athlete who carries a lot more muscle mass on their frame and understanding that we're not trying to like necessarily push the realms of physiological here but these 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 like frameworks that they give sometimes to say this is like the physiological range when you're talking about a a athlete potentially that range isn't quite accurate and being slightly above that potentially for somebody who is an athlete and is not a normal person with normal amount of muscle mass that actually they may need some additional support just like you would if you're a male potentially your TRT dose may be slightly more than somebody who is like a lifestyle individual well it's that whole thing of like range isn't it oh you're in range yeah but that could be that you are just in range or just like a momentary from going out of range and you're super high um and I think that's that's where it's dangerous and women I'm going to focus this on women because that's kind of where we are on the podcast but women that go to like a a doctor and and here in the NHS the doctor always comes back and I've had so many conversations with women where they go oh they said everything's fine it's in range and that's why I think private blood work has a real place in not just competitors lives but everyone's lives because you actually get to see what the ranges are where you are within that and nine times out of ten you get a write-up on that as well yeah i think i uh, like a good way like to conceptualize like the reference range is like if we had a, a group and we measured all their heights right mm. and we had a range of like eh, for females five foot to five foot ten and that's like our normal reference range but then we have like those couple females that are like four foot ten, and also some females that are like six feet tall. And you're like, well, that's not that's out of range. It's like, well, those are still like norms for them. Like that's yeah. their normal. And so that's where you have like you're gonna have outliers in the reference ranges where yes, it's within a normal reference range, but with for that individual, it might not be a normal to where they have like all the the normal feelings that we should have like we're female with good energy libido etc so you have to still treat like treat the person not a lab marker like what is the symptomology that they're presenting with and and, and very well could be indicative that they still need a intervention even if they're on the lower level um or a higher level in other situations i know this is more about like uh, testosterone but also not just looking at a lab marker too. It's treating the person, right? So yeah. with testosterone, it's where, where are they coming from and what can we do moving forward? So like for like Renee's um, uh, situation with like birth control, it's going to suppress her um, HPO axis. And if not coming off birth control, it's very indicative that she probably you need testosterone for what she wants to do and being a PC competitor. Now that might say, Hey, we don't use testosterone. We're going to come off hormonal birth control. If that's your choice, see what you restored to. And then it may be indicative after that. Now that's not all the competitors, right? Like we have like timelines for our goals. And so I'll, I'm going to address that back in a, a moment, but there's some other situations, right? You might have a perimenopausal female, or a postmenopausal female that also we're seeing decline in just overall hormones. Also reasons you might see like lower testosterone. The PCOS female, well, you very well could see a high amount of androgens in that female. Is that someone who used testosterone? Well, no, it very, very much um, wouldn't be. 
in that situation, they have like an overproduction of androgens, usually from insulin resistance. So that's a more common thing that I'll see in like female competitors I come across. So there's an, an aspect around that. But you need to know like where is your female coming from to know where, where to go with them to solve any like root underlying issues from there. And then even with the testosterone deployment, if, if that's an option, it's, uh, you know, where are they starting at within that reference range? So if you have a female that's down at that 0.8 nanomolar per liter, do you want to shoot them all the way up to that 3.5 nanomolar per liter first, first go? It's like, no, like just, just doubling that level um, is going to be tremendous for that female. So we would titrate them up and see the response see how they present and maybe that will see them out to their physique goals as well before needing to go up into the higher normal range so but if you have a female that's say at uh in the middle of that range i don't what 1.3 nanomolar well that that's still like bringing them up into that higher range is going to be different than the female that's starting at 20 right so like your starting point in that reference range matters for how you want to titrate someone up. So it's uh there, yeah, there should be a, like an assessment that goes into place here before thinking about does everyone get testosterone and for the physique competitor. So I'm going to, I'll bring it back to that point. I'm, I'm sorry. I know I'm talking forever here. I'll get it back. No, to no, it's, it's golden. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> yeah. So for the physique competitor, um, the issues that I see, that come to me and, and you're going to be far underrepresented a female physique competitor in the literature like you won't have have this data around so it's what we what we see as coaches is that i almost <laughs> very commonly i'll say the majority i see is this low testosterone less than that 0.9 nanomolar per liter because for one a lot of females prep for long durations and you're seeing lowering of the hpo axis then also post-show you're trying to restore hormone levels and we see like it, it can take months to restore these levels then we'll have some duration of off season which depending on what that competitive season looks like for a female it's pretty short so even if you do get testosterone levels back up it's only held for some brief moments before they're already back into a prep so you're spending a lot of time with suboptimal testosterone levels and also to take the time off months and months to sit with those restored levels mm -hmm. it takes away from the actual physique goal of like hey we have competitive goals that we want to get to at some time point so in those those situations it makes sense to already go ahead and start trt a little bit more preemptively than you would in someone that say hey doesn't have competition goals that's going to sit out for for long durations or not compete at all right so to be able to sit in like normal to high female ranges for your entire prep your post-show without these vast hormone fluctuations like you'll have better ability to maintain tissue throughout your prep with body fat loss and also the psychological aspects of having low hormones will be a lot easier um prep wise for that female too and this comes this comes back down to the the needs analysis thing doesn't it of the individual and what hannah spoke about about you know females saying oh i have don't have a regular cycle i feel a bit like this i feel a bit like that okay well what is your long-term goal? How old are you? What position are you in? And I agree massively with the idea of a physique athlete saying, okay, well, you've got competitive goals that you maybe want to reach in three years time or whatever. And therefore you're going to be spending a lot of time going, 
off-season prep, off-season prep, and therefore this level of stability is going to be probably paramount partly to your success going through those those different phases and not having to spend a long time stabilizing hormones in an off-season just to then crash them back down again in prep mm. is almost pointless. And it's going to create a, a longer timeline for somebody to be able to achieve what they want to achieve and potentially actually long-term detriment. And I think that's something to pick up on as well. Long-term detriment to the health and ability to restore levels potentially after multiple preps and actually not being, you know, seeing actually the positives in this as opposed to that whole, oh my God, testosterone is a really bad thing. And actually it could actually have the complete opposite effect with you and your physique goals and actually potentially give you the opportunity to be maybe more successful in what you're doing in actually a safer environment. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And this is like why we make the case like testosterone is the starting point for a lot of females for the first androgen that's introduced and pulling your females lab work to see if they, where they are. And if they do have like this lower level, um, like testosterone for one, it's, uh, it's it's bioidentical like the female body is already producing it it already knows how to naturally handle it there will be metabolites from it that you already know how to to handle as well so like you'll have more estradiol present you might have some conversion to dht but again it's something that you should naturally be able to to manage we have long-term data with it being able to show that it, it is relatively safe the nice thing about it is you can actually measure it in the labs so it's not like when your female takes like Anivar or, you know, uh, you know, Oxangelone or Primobolin, you can't measure that in labs. So you don't know, like, what is it doing response wise? Like with testosterone, you take, you know, X amount of milligrams and you can see how, how much that raises that female. So you can then see how they respond and you can get actual real testosterone. Like it's far likely you're going to get a, a fake testosterone than you would like uh, a Primobolin. And then we have clear data to say like, this absolutely works for like elite level females when you are implementing testosterone. So I know that that stigma around testosterone is present, but, but really it could very well be the first androgen that we do introduce for, for females for progressing that model uh, for um, physique enhancement. Um, it's, some, it's something as well I think is, is really important to touch on is we talk about it a lot with sort of non-androgenic um, assistance in bodybuilding, using things like growth hormone, potentially insulin, things like that, that are non-androgenic where you're not going to experience these viralization side effects. Implementing something like um, a TRT to give somebody a stable hormone level, obviously specifically talking about females, may reduce the need or the potential want or I'll go with need to implement something else like maybe an Anavar or a Primabolin at certain stages of their journey because, you know, I think it's a it's an old school thing, isn't it? Okay, we, we reach a certain point and oh, we implement 10 milligrams of anavar a day, brilliant. And yeah. I think that we can come away from that a lot, knowing that we've got this hormonal baseline that, like you say, if somebody especially sits really low on the on the on the reading, they're they're 0.4 nanomol, for example, 0.5. That's not uncommon for me to see when I'm seeing blood work. To then raise somebody into what is a, a higher end of physiological range, how much more they're gonna get out of their journey, their training, everything is probably going to level them up maybe to the point where they don't even necessarily need to look at using something mm -hmm. else to enhance their physique and actually they'll get so much more out of doing the things which are safer and healthier as opposed to thinking right okay I've reached this point now I need some assistance to maybe get me to my muscularity goals actually they're going to get a lot more out of 
just putting themselves in a slightly more optimal position and potentially then can reduce the need and the risk associated with implementing something else. I am. Um, oh, sorry, Hannah. Sorry, go ahead. no, please go on, John. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree. You know, it's for a female, the greatest risk with using anabolic steroids is virilization. So all the masculizing side effects. So basically the duration of use, also the dosage of use, it all just added up over your cumulative competitive years. Like all that will really like lead to its final version of masculization. Like look at master levels competitors. Like there's a lot of virilization that occurred, just continued use over time. So even if it's, hey, I only do five milligrams Anavar for eight weeks, or you're doing 20 milligrams of Anavar, but for four weeks, like over time, that could still lead to the same endpoint. So virilization by far is the greatest risk for females. It's not like males where we're going to run into cardiovascular disease, kidney issues. For females, that's going to be the first thing that's going to be problematic. And and so that's what you should protect yourself against, like the need to have to use anabolic steroids. So if we can move someone up like within within the normal range for, for testosterone therapy and also use non-androgens and that sees out their goals, that's great. Like that's such a risk reduction for that female. Mm-hmm. Then move in the androgens as you need to f- then continue to see out the goal. Now, I will say like the non-androgens, yes, they're, they have an impact, but it's nothing like the androgens do, right? So that that movement from when you're using non-androgens and TRT, I usually keep females, like depending on the goal, it's relatively a shorter duration before we move into using androgens, uh, just because that only moves the needle so far. For a lot, it moves it plenty, but that's just where you have to have like the needs assessment of, of as you're moving up. So I think gym performance and the visuals are, are great tools. Like if you're progressing your lifts in the gym, perfect. Like you have everything you need to, to be moving towards your goal for muscularity. Once you see that female, like starting to really get stagnant, like I can't progress my lifts anymore. Visually, if you're increasing food and they're just getting softer, it's like, all right, this is a point where you make the consideration for the next escalation, whatever that is for a female, maybe it's more non-androgens or it's androgens coming in, but it's a stepwise approach and assessing along the way for how much they need. I would say as well for females, and I don't know if you agree, Hannah, that especially in the UK, we can speak for this because we, we mix with these girls all the time. And especially even the coaches in the UK and um, coaching females that the reason why often, the reason why often anabolic steroids away, I'm not talking about anavar here, I'm talking about implementing things like primobolin is, is shied away from a little bit is because of this barrier of like using injectables. And I think overcoming that with explaining the use of like testosterone the positives and and why potentially that can be a, a really good route for you then actually that opens the door to anabolics and I do agree with you that that window is shorter that once people make the adjustments okay okay I don't mind injectables you know I'll start using growth hormone and I'm open to the use of TRT then suddenly their eyes open to like bigger physique and competitive goals because they've overcome this barrier of using injectables um I think that that is one of the main barriers to people's like potential success in their physique goals is that they're they are trying to find every single way possible to progress without using an injectable and while we don't mind talking about it because it's something that we do and once you're comfortable with it it's fine but I think a lot of maybe amateur athletes avoid the use of things like and I don't want to start talking about 
other things we're talking about testosterone yeah. here but they don't they don't want to go down the route of like oh, i don't want to use gh and i don't want to do this and i don't want to do that because i don't want to put an, an injectable in my body so i'll just turn to anavar and part of our awareness on this podcast is like okay well you know that doesn't need to be the answer and actually isn't the safest route for you and if you can yeah. understand that using an injectable and using things like tests get your blood done see where you're at can you make you as a human more optimal in the position that you're in without taking an androgenic potentially is going to put you in a much better spot so overcoming that fear of injectables so I think the the injectable fear also comes from a psychological thing right so there was a very well-known coach here in the UK that said uh, a little while ago that it's much easier to tell a woman to take a tablet or half of a tablet than it is to get her to get the right amount in a needle and it's kind of this thing of what can women not read a marking for a measurement on a syringe in the same way as men can. And I think if there was more kind of confidence around injectables for women, then there would be less fear and more women would feel more empowered to do it. But because there's this thing of, oh, no, no, like you just take this Anavar because this is the bikini, as it's known, the bikini drug. Um, uh, and then you're running that for a long time I had a girl message me to say that one of her clients had come from another coach and he had told her that it was safe to run up to 120 meg of Anavar for 11 weeks um, and she'd be absolutely fine and she was like my god I can't I'd like where where do you get that information from um, which I think this kind of topic of uh, injectables versus like why you'd have that fear of going down that injectable route with um, Femtest leads us quite nicely onto another topic we wanted to talk about with um, female PED use, and that was Anavar versus Primo. Um, and we really were intrigued to get your thoughts on the differences between the two, why you may go with one over the other for a female, and why do you think that there is in the industry this this lean towards Anavar over something like Prima Bylon? Yeah, it's definitely for a lot like for a lot of these drugs, like with with females, we kind of have a, a, sh a relatively short list of what would be more female friendly. And like I mentioned earlier, like testosterone was initial treatment in breast cancer. And of course, that's pretty virilizing at the dosages they were using. So it's like, well, how do we make it less virilizing? We come out with a, a testosterone molecule that doesn't 5-alpha reduce to DHT. So that's when we have all the DHT derivatives come about, which your Primobolin, Anavar, Masteron. And so these were some of the initial ones that they were using in, in breast cancer. We still see some utilized today in, in the clinical setting, no longer for breast cancer. They have better drugs that do that. But um, Primobolin was one that was used at there's one study that uses like 1,200 milligrams per week of preambulin in females with about like 50% of the women experiencing virilizing side effects. But that dosage is insanity for females. Um, yeah, now, anyone so, at home, do yeah, not try don't, to. Don't do that. That's not what I recommend. <laughs> but, but point being, like 100 milligrams per week of preambulin comparatively to 1,200 milligrams is a very, very low percentage. Um, the, the thing about it too is like even there was – Another study I came across the other day was looking at uh, a plastic anemia. So they're having like a um, inability to produce red blood cells. And so they, they use a lot of steroids to treat that condition. Um, 
One had a Masteron, there was Anadrol used, also Primabolin. At similar dosages, Primabolin had the least risk of virilization. Um, so Primabolin relatively, like if we look clinically, has a very um, benign effect for the virilizing effects for females. There's another interesting study, um, Boris 1970, takes seven different steroids, compares them for, it's in rodents, but it's comparing like relatively how much it builds muscle tissue. And across the board, milligram for milligram, it was about the same. So on a milligram for milligram basis, like one milligram of Anavar versus one milligram of Primobolin versus one milligram of Mastron, they all build muscle pretty close the same. However, they do cause differentiating side effects. So that's what where it really comes down to when we're picking the drug choice. Like out of all these compounds, they're going to build muscle about the same, but which one's going to produce the less side effect for a female? And looking throughout the literature, clinically, dosage-wise, like primobolin seems to be able to be the most tolerated at the highest dosages by females without side effects occurring. So positive with, with primobolin is that it's low virilization. The benefit of it being injectable, and there is oral primobolin, but very hard to access. And also the it would cause, you would need like multiple day um, dosing too. So injectable is really what you're coming across is that it doesn't have to go through the liver. So it's not as liver toxic and also it won't alter lipids as much. Now for a female, the dosages you take, it's not vastly causing major lipid alterations. So that's not, this is not to demonize Anivar at all because there's also negatives around Primavala 2, which it's highly faked. Um, like we've sent off, testing for preambolin and we've had it come back as boldenone or extremely low dose uh, preambolin so that's an issue also it's all, pretty much only available underground now um, to get actual farm grade preambolin is near near impossible um, Bayer used to make some I, I think it's all uh, counterfeit now so that don't quote me on that that could be incorrect but for my knowledge like to get legit farm grade primo is just not a thing anymore um, so with Anabar, for one, it's, it is currently in use clinically. It's one of the most studied drugs that we have as far as for, for a steroid in this realm that we're talking about for, for females. And it's, it's also much more available farm grade. Like in the U S we can get HRT clinics to write scripts for females for farm grade Anabar, which if you gave that option to me, untested Primabolin versus farm grade Anabar. I absolutely would pick the farm grade Anabar as a choice for a female. So if I knew guaranteed, and think about this, like the, the greatest risk for females is virilization, right? So having to know for sure what you're getting is what you're getting. The Anabar to me would be less risk in that situation. Now, if I had like some HPLC tested Primabolin, that's still, a, that's still like an option that I would go with in that case to avoid like the oral route. Um, the negative with Anivar, it is oral. So it, it does cause a little bit more liver stress and lipid alterations. But uh, again, like the durations of use and dosages for the females, it's not that vast, but certain females are more responsive to it. Like for like it, for like Renee, like if she does it, like it like cuts her HDL down quite a bit. LDL raises out a little bit when she already has some of those um, elevations, but Anivar could be highly fake too. So um, I think that's where you have to weigh out 
the accessibility, reliability of your product, maybe affordability has to be factored into that. So it's really like, what is the best option to choose to keep your female um, safe? So there's not like you have to use Preambolin as the first one. It's uh, there, there's more to think to that conversation. Um, yeah, this was something we discussed before, wasn't it? Like accessibility, <laughs> what you can and what you can get hold of. Also, then it does come down to affordability. And um, this is why often maybe people will say, oh, you know, I can't use GH because accessibility isn't good. So I can't use that drug or I can't afford it because, you know, it's expensive. So maybe we need to try and look at getting me to where I want to be without using that or, you know, seeing what seeing what somebody actually has around you. Like in the UK, it's slightly different. You know, you're not getting this stuff from the doctor. It is from underground labs. Anavar, because it's like a popular drug, there is like a lot of it floating around and a lot of fake stuff. There are a couple of good um, I'll say good, but like trusted underground labs that people trust more of. Like they'll say, oh, mm. have you got this product from here? Because this is where you need to be getting it from because they're a trusted source. Um, and the dosing as well. Like I've seen Primavolin be like dosed now in, in, you know, 200 meg per mil. And that's not as favorable that like 100 meg is because we know that's a little bit more trusted from the, the sources we can get it from in the UK. So it's like understanding that and understanding, like you say, what is maybe more trusted and therefore being able to use that and actually knowing what the product is that you're putting in as opposed to just hoping that it's the right thing because that is a better drug. But if you don't know it's a better drug, then, OK, that's that's potentially not not very helpful either. Yeah, you brought up a good a good point around that about um, like dosing for the like primabolin. Um and I'm going to bring it back to testosterone, but then go back to like the Primobolin Anabar thing, because I think it, it relates well to what we're talking about Um there, there's like a, a great study done with um, a testosterone dose response in females. So they take, I think it was like around 70 women for 24 weeks. They put them on different dosages of testosterone. One week, not one of them not taking testosterone. The other one using three milligrams, six milligrams, 12 milligrams, and 25 milligrams. So this is to see like, what is the response to females at different dosages of testosterone? At three milligrams per week of testosterone, we see females, some of them will move up above, and I have to forget the 3.5 nanomolar per liter. Some of them are below it. Like the standard deviation there is pretty vast. So it just shows you like the response to testosterone significantly varies for females. The same response is going to happen with using primabolin or anivar. For some female, like taking X amount of anivar is going to be a much greater response than another female. Testosterone kind of allows you to see this, what that response potentially could be. So for one, starting doses for females, like based on this study, three milligrams per week is absolutely the starting point. I have females, some of them starting at 20 milligrams per week that I see from HRT clinics that come. In that same study, right, the, the group taking 25 milligrams of testosterone, some of those females went up. Um, it was 200 nanogram per deciliter, which is probably in that six nanomolar per liter yeah. uh, if I, like off the top of my head, um, which is moving into like male territory at 50 milligrams per week is where female to male transgender, like reassignment. That's where that dosage starts to happen. So three milligrams is the starting point for females. Now that range could go up to 10 milligrams per week and still be a normal range. Just depends on the response, but always start at the lowest end then move, then titrate up. 
I, I've seen this with clients, exactly that, like where yeah. three milligrams has been implemented. And actually that's pushed. I've had one client that's pushed them up to the like 3.35 nanomol per liter. Like for me, three, like three milligrams a week is, is too low. Like I don't I yeah. don't get that kind of response. And we've actually pulled her back a little bit. Like the response she's had from it is absolutely huge, like in terms of her physique, in terms of everything, strength in the gym. And we're probably pushing that boundary a little bit. So we've just we've just pulled it back a tiny little bit. We pulled it back to 2.7. And and that, I think, especially for now, until bloods are done a little bit further down the line, especially as this is the first time that we've implemented anything like this with her to keep her, I think, physiologically, uh, psychologically as well in a place where she feels like, OK, this is normal. Um is actually been really positive but I've seen that a lot with people at different different dosages you get such a different response and you know I think that comes down to a lot of things which I'm sure you can tell us about but muscularity of that female potentially maybe if they've had any previous exposure to androgens potentially um, and what that what that then looks like for the individual yeah yeah so yeah once you see that response like it should give you an idea of how you should dose everything else from that point, right? So for that female that that you had, that's like hyper response at three milligrams, like you don't put her on 50 milligrams of Primo first first go, right? Like she doesn't need that much. But for another female that needs a higher testosterone input to see the same response, that might require more like to see to see uh, the response when she goes into like other androgens. So testosterone is allowing you to see like, what the response is right um in in this same study they did show like the changes in muscle mass right from that 10 milligram to the 25 milligram there was a more significant increase in muscle mass in these females for 24 weeks now it was like one to two kilogram increase the other ones weren't weren't huge changes but again these are like older women not resistance training right so the fact they're just adding muscles is pretty significant in, in and of itself so that's where I think you can make a where I make the consideration for where other androgen dosages should maybe be placed in this 15 milligram to like 25 milligram per week on the lower end for the female that responds well to like low testosterone towards the higher end for the female that needs a little bit more testosterone to respond. So like for Anivar, people don't think of it as a and this is where I'm getting back to what we're talking about Primo versus Anivar. People don't think of an Anivar as a milligram per week dosing. They think of it just daily, right? Mm-hmm. So 10 milligram per day is 70 milligram per week. Or uh, 5 milligram per day is 35 milligram per week. So a starting dose for a female that hyper responds on 3 milligrams of test per week, it's probably 2.5 milligrams of Anivar per day. That's already going to be in that like 15 milligram per week. Which milligram for milligram basis, these drugs accrue muscle tissue about the same rate. So we have testosterone and compare off of for the response and the dosing in turn. So that's where it could be a starting point for androgen introduction for whether it's Anivar or it's Primabolin. And then we titrate it based on the need. Have you all ever come across DHEA use? Yeah, so it's... It... I mean, I don't know if you've been recommended it, Hannah, but um, previously when I've had blood system in the UK, um, I have, yes, been recommended, like, my testosterone has been lower before I started implementing TRT. Oh, yeah, have you looked at DHEA use? Now, I my understanding is that there is 
there are sometimes reasons like your testosterone could be low due to maybe DHA insufficiency, but also like potentially not because testosterone comes from like like two origins, right? Three origins within the body. So it's not always DHEA, um, but it can be something that helps to boost that testosterone level. I mean, you can give a little bit more detail there, but yeah, it's something that is often guided when you get private bloods back from certain labs in the UK. If women are low on their testosterone, they will often say, okay, well, why don't you introduce a DHEA at 30 milligrams? Yeah, Hannah, do you ever come across it at all, DHEA? I was going to say of all of the blood tests I've had, I've been with specialists for two years, done loads of private blood tests. No one's ever mentioned it. OK, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we just with testosterone production in females like we could say there's three origin points. I don't, I don't know. It's not origin points, but there's adrenals. Right. So you can produce DHEA from the adrenals. DHEA doesn't really have a main role function we don't have dha receptors but all of its metabolites are what then has the effect so dha can then move into like estradiol or testosterone um, then the ovaries produce testosterone and then those metabolites uh, could also because there's androstenedione and some other androgens that could then convert to testosterone in the peripheral tissues so there's a ratio there of like how much the ovaries produce and how much the adrenals produce. Some females have more adrenal production, some have less. Um, some may have like what we talk like an adrenal insufficiency to where the adrenals aren't putting out much DHEA. That in turn might be why testosterone level is, is lower. So it's like, oh, we'll take testosterone. Well, for that female, it's like it's needs based, right? In the assessment. So uh, maybe we need to address like, well, why why are the adrenals not putting out enough DHEA and go through that route? While at the same time, you very well could like supplement with DHEA to restore that need. And DHEA, um, yeah, 10 to up to 25 milligram per week, maybe a starting point and titrate up to 50 to actually have like a physiological amount of testosterone present. The issue with DHEA is that it doesn't go straight to testosterone. So if you have a female that moves a lot down the path into estradiol and not testosterone, um, you might see more estradiol increase. So it might not be the right fit for every female, um, but it, it could be a, a if a female's not comfortable using testosterone, that might be a route to go because it absolutely could bring up testosterone level. Um, and, and so it's, it's an option, but I, I still think with the long term of what we want for physique outcomes and being able to more uh, able to control testosterone level, taking testosterone directly would be the route for for the majority of, of competitors. But DHEA is definitely an option on the table. So I want I just wanted to bring it up to know like that is a thing that's out there. Um, if you're seeing like your DHEA uh, levels lower than usually it's in um, microgram per deciliter, usually less than 100 is where you kind of want that over over 200 um, is where you might consider evaluating the adrenals in that aspect. It's, it's definitely worth giving a go for the for the cost of it as well. It's quite a cheap product and it's easy yeah. to get hold of. Um, and obviously sides are, well, there isn't any. So, you know, it's definitely something that um, something people can can try. I mean, I tried it with a client who came back blood low, testosterone low, and we tried to do everything that we possibly could before implementing a TRT dose with her and that is something that we tried 
um, it didn't didn't actually work. Um, like we didn't we didn't really see any effects from it. But it is something that we did try. But for some for some individuals, it may help if that is where your deficiency, I guess, is. Um, so yeah, I think that's a good point made. Yeah. Um, uh, other questions around? Uh, well, there was something. Well, yeah, kind of dipping in the toes of testosterone, um, Primo, GH, um, okay. all of everything combined. Um, we had a, a question from uh, one of my friends actually, who is a, a figure pro, um, and she. She's a little bit older. She's my age and um, she's got her own kind of set of problems. But she wanted to kind of talk about the link between um, the use of performance enhancing drugs um, and everything that falls under that, including Femtest. Um, and then the the kind of conversation that's had around, oh, I'm I've still got striations in my glutes and um I'm banging 4,000 calories a day and I'm doing no cardio, but they're not talking about the fact that they're assisted and then the impact that assistance can have on like mm. the increase in food and how more muscle can play into that. And and yeah, just talking about the fact that you, you can't, there's very few people that I know of anyway, that are fully natural, that their food is through the roof, that they've got a load of muscle on them and they've hold, they hold lines all year round. <laughs> yeah, I think it comes down to as well the the thing about talking about the fact that people are assisted. So a lot of women don't talk about it, maybe because of the stigma or maybe because of the fact that people might judge them or whatever. So there isn't a lot of talk about it. And then but they're quite happy to stand there and say, oh, yeah, but I look like this and I eat all this food and I do all this. But they don't caveat the fact that when they put all their information on Instagram about what they're doing, the fact that they may be running 100 milligrams of Prima Bowl in a week and they're doing this, this and this. Um, yeah. So it is a bit of a stigma thing. Yeah, that's it. Social media makes it hard for, for <laughs> all of us, but definitely for for females, too. Um, it, it seems more a psychological impact with especially like, you know, body image order disorder is much more more prevalent. And social media, we see like the highlight reel of everyone's physiques. Like I, I remember like I was uh, a while back, like I when I was with a coach. His one client was posting pics all year round, and the guy was just shredded all the time. Like, how in the hell? I asked him finally, like, what's going on with this guy? Like, how does he stay like that? And he's like, oh man, when he's like close to show, he does so many photo shoots, and he just posts that all year round. So it's like, wow, like, what a misconception. Like, I, I would have thought this guy is just like, I'm, I'm just so far genetically, you know, inferior. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, you can't go off social media for why do I not look like that? Or why do I not respond like that? Because again, you are seeing like the highlight mm -hmm. reel and people are Photoshopping like crazy too, which mm -hmm. um, you just have to compare to yourself and go off that result. Uh, yes, we're in a competition where we stand next to others. So there is a comparison of, you know, where you are development wise and what do you need to get there? Um, that should take place. But again, don't be led down the misconceptions within social media because those females like you speak of that are lean year round and are on high food, they're so rare. Like yeah. the majority of females I coach, they have a hard time losing body fat. Um, they have to get down to low food and high cardio like the majority of them do. And off season, like it's a fight to not 
put on body fat, even with assistance, right? Like that's, that's the reality of like most of the females that I coach, the rare ones are those freaks that just stay lean all the time. And they're also probably the ones that don't use a lot. Like I know some females that are in like the top at the Olympia and you would be shocked to know what they do. It would be upsetting because it's so little uh, for some of them, you know, it'd be like, there's no way they're liars, but they're truly like, there's such different levels to like the genetic response. There are also some females that are there. Like they don't ever lose their menstrual cycle competing. Like it's yeah. wild. The resilience to dieting, the resilience to side effects from drugs, like they're on another level. So you can't compare again, them. It's the genetic elite that get to the Olympia, isn't it? So yeah. with a pinch of salt but um it there does seem to be this kind of there's one coaching team here in the UK that seems to have this title of no cardio loads of food and and it seems to be all of the girls are like that um but the same coaching team do really like to sprinkle some extras in there but not talk about it so I think that's where this question came from Gotcha. Yeah. And I like there's some US coaches that post up females at like opportune times, right? So like in the post show phase, like they're like in this hyper metabolic state. Food's crazy high, they're still lean, be like, yeah, look where their food's at now. Or they're they got ready early for a show and you can feed them into the show. They're like, Yeah, end of diet, look where food's at. Like that's not what they actually dieted on though. So it can be very misleading. I hate Posts like that because it is misleading of what it truly takes to get down. And then you have like, they turn around and be like, coach, why am I not having this amazing prep with high food and no cardio? Like that's, that is not the reality of what, yeah. what it is or probably what you're signing up for, for this coach. It very well be, could be, they, they make up for that with a lot of drug use. And that's, what we have to get it back to like, what is the longevity here? Because for a female, like you want to compete for a couple of years or, hey, do you plan to do this for the next 10 years? Mm. To get really good, like, the females can do it. Like, it takes time. So you do need a strategy that can mitigate side effects and titrate you up in PD usage, not throw everything in year one, because where do you go from there? 10 years down the road, like, you're not going to be at a spot you want to you be at, like, virilization-wise, health-wise. I think this comes down to as well people being a little bit more open, which I think is where the question came from, is not just um, not just competitors, but coaches, especially. And you'll probably see this with coaches, maybe not actually saying what they're doing with somebody, maybe because they don't have the confidence to back it. They're saying, oh, you know, it, I think if, if coaches aren't very, very confident, potentially, and they can't really give education and description as to why they are maybe doing something with a client, they maybe just think, you know, more is more, have some more drugs. And yes. they're not confident to talk about it and say, oh, I'm running this and this and this with this client and this is the result that we're getting because they yeah. think, well, I know that I shouldn't really be doing that, so I'm not going to publicize it. But then also the client potentially being worried and, and scared about being open about this. And this is something that people have congratulated, I would say congratulated, like been a big positive to like me and Hannah and a couple of other people in the industry, like namely like this pro that, we're, that we speak to, you know, she she puts out there what she's doing because she's saying, look, in order to reach these crazy physique goals that I've got, I am having to do this, 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 this and this. And, yeah. you know, she's received a lot of backlash for this saying, oh, you know, you you're going to be a boy or why do you want to look like that? Da, da, yeah. da, da, da. But she's trying to put it out there and say, yeah, these are my goals. 
and I've become a pro in two, two, three years. Great. But this is what I do in order to maintain this, to grow this, to be competitive, to try and go to the Olympia. And it's something that we try and share. You know, we're sharing the story about testosterone, about this, this and this, because we want people to be more open about it. Because if Mm. you're not and you have this maybe crazy look or you look great and you're not actually telling people that you're taking Prima Bowl and you're on testosterone, you're, you know, you're in a prep and you're doing this, this and this and doing an hour and a half of cardio a day and you're not talking about that. You just create this false sense of reality for people. And actually, Mm. you know, to achieve crazy physique goals, you actually have to, you know, it's not it's not a, a secret that to achieve something that's up here you probably need to do things that are potentially up there as well to be able to achieve that unless you are some kind of crazy genetic person right yeah for the majority like at some point to be at that pro level you know genetic consideration like you'll have to be pushing it at some point pretty hard like even for the male side like we i think we all have our area where we we pushed it pretty aggressively to add the tissue on after that, it can come down to maintain it, but there absolutely will have to be some some risk taken. I think with what you're talking about, like for a female to come out and say that you don't want it to ever like take away from your work that you're doing. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's that's why. There you go. That's why yeah. she looks the way she does. It's she's taking X, Y, Z um, or even as a coach. It's like you're not coaching the female, like takes away from your own work and what you're putting in. It's like, oh, you just throw drugs at them. It's like, well, well, no, we do all the other things too, but th- this is part of it, right? So there's a lot of judgment that comes along with the industry. It seems like um, a, a little different for females in that capacity, especially in social media. Like, like once you have like a, a, a big following, like half people are going to just totally bash you. The other people be supportive and understanding. So you just have to put the blinders on and, and know the people that you're you're influencing, the ones that support you that really want to know the transparency, like those are the people that matter to share it for people are going to bash it. But those are also the people that who cares if you're influencing them or not, like they're going to probably bash you either way. (laughs) Yeah. You're going to have to just be acceptance to that. I think a little bit, which is a shame that you have to be accepting to the fact that people are going to speak to you or about you like that. But it's something that, you know, it comes with the territory a little bit because it's weird for people. It is weird. Like our little world and industry is weird to the normal, to the normal folk. Like it is strange what we do. Um, it is weird but I think that point that I think the point you made there John about doing doing more often say taking these drugs or doing this or doing that isn't necessarily going to achieve the physique that you want like everything else probably is going to come first and this is like the icing on the cake to give you that extra potential you know unlock that extra potential that maybe that is there but you still have to work hard you still have to train like like you train you still have to eat like you need to eat you have to recover like you need to recover you know taking drugs and even just coming back back to the testosterone thing like okay you can create a better baseline for yourself it's not necessarily going to achieve you crazy results if you don't already do the things that you need to be doing and that's why looking at that like level of drug use potentially is like at the higher maybe level athlete who's looking to take things a little bit further or maybe that this is their career and their, their long goal and that's where you can then look into this and the first place to start is still always as we always say like food training etc and getting the basics right first I am um, I had a conversation with a girl who asked me on this question box for for this episode she was like what impact does femtest have on strength and um and performance in the gym and one of my friends asked me the other week she was like so like yeah you take it for that but 
how, how are you training now? And I, I just said to them both, I was like, if anything, I'm exactly the same as I was. Um, I haven't made progressions in the gym in weeks. Um, and, and it seems to be a shock to them because there's this idea that it's a shortcut, right? And then you get the newer, and I'm not just going to say women, both men and women, newer athletes under the circuit, that they think more is more and I want to get there quicker. So I'll take this and they don't nail the basics first. And that's when we see someone. I mean, I've been working with uh, two bros here in the UK for the last year. And and I can say that I've seen some people step on stage and I've gone, OK, I think they rushed that because you can tell when someone has rushed getting to that point they haven't got that muscle maturity um so I think yeah there's this idea like with the pro that we're talking about where she's trying to get out there that yes I do these things I also nail every other aspect of my life yeah I think there there is a a lot of the females that come to me and even probably for y'all that coach like you'll get some females that are in the natural realm and you need to then progress up but we also get females that have already been introduced to androgens and not all the other aspects, right? So there is a assessment that needs to take place for what direction do you head with the female that comes to you that have already not followed like the best framework for using androgens? Do you scale them back? Do you not use them? Do you use them because they already used them? And so with females that come to me like that, depending on where they're at in their season, I usually strip it back to if they're using TRT, we stay on that. We have like some non-androgens that are in place and then we just sit there for three months and see where we move. Three months is just an arbitrary number. It could be, it could be less, could be more, but I also consider like where they're at execution wise and maturity. So if there's variables that we're just getting masked by heavy PD use, a lot of times I can pull more out, right? So if their nutrition wasn't great routine, if their training wasn't on, like if I can max, if I see that's missing, I can maximize that. I want to put that in place without androgens to see what I can pull out. And then once I see the response, then I can gauge how much androgen is really needed for that female. Now, there are females that they execute everything right. They use a lot of androgens, and that's where they're at. And that's where we, that's where we have to move forward from. Mm-hmm. That's just the reality of like working with that type of female. I think once you do get to that level, for like some of these highly muscular females, like the risk that we're talking about, that isn't nearly as important to them anymore. Like the stages, they accept like some of the virilization that comes along with it. Mm-hmm. And fertility is not uh, on the table either. So that is within their risk profile and where we need to meet them for physique goals. So like what we speak on here, at least for, for my, myself, like, I'm all about risk reduction, but the stage outcomes is what these women are signing up for me for. So it's just balancing expectations, making sure they understand what their risk model is, and if that needs to shift to align also with their with their stage goals. I think that's a really good point and something that I think is probably undervalued here in the UK in terms of assessing people's risk against goals and actually what is maybe necessary and what is not necessary especially in male coaches that maybe coach a lot of females but actually aren't very experienced or knowledgeable in female health as a whole like how the female body works how they're so different to males and they're not small men and looking at that that risk 
versus reward in terms of what is their long-term goal? Do they just want to compete for a year or two as a bit of a hobby because they like it? Or do they want to take this all the way to the Olympia? Do they have the genetic potential to do that? And if they do, having that conversation and putting a model in place there that says, okay, this is the risk. And are we prepared to accept that to you know move forward and if we're not okay you may need to reassess like the long-term goal and and then that comes on to the question um which i think we were going to cover on like in more depth on another podcast but about like long-term fertility in bodybuilding and obviously then like the risks associated with what we're doing but i think you make a really valid point there that i would say that potentially with a lot of coaching teams in the uk maybe there is this like i present to you a bikini athlete who wants to compete will they look at them as a bikini athlete competing in this season how do I get them to the best possible look on stage as possible at the for this year right now instead of saying okay well that is maybe the goal for now but as an athlete that person where do they want to be in two years time or 10 years time and that should really dictate how they get them to the the stage goal this time because that would look very different for two very different athletes who have very long-term different aspirations but I think people are often just put in this box of like okay you're on my team this year I've got 20 prep girls they all need to stand on stage in August right I'll get them there looking the best that they can to do this okay but what does that person want to do long term because if it you know out of those 20 athletes they all could be very very different and therefore you bring them all in very very different depending on the long-term goal it's having the prep plan right versus the life plan yeah it definitely um I would you know for these females coming to you you know it's uh, it, yes, we have stages. I get the pressure as a coach to deliver results. Like your results is what's going to keep clients with you. It's what's going to bring new clients in, get you to higher level clients as well. So there absolutely is a pressure to just like, you see that the females that make like the huge, like one year transformation, you're like, holy crap. Like what did that coach do? Like, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. And you might not know what you're signing up for, like risk wise. I get the pressure as a coach, but also there's like, and just an ethical consideration with what you're doing coaching that you have a lot of care for these people, responsibility in these people's lives for short-term, but also long-term health health. Like you don't want to be responsible for when they're 30 years later, like so regretful of what they did in this. And, and you are a part of that. Right. So that's a huge role as a coach to have, like you have to have that consideration in the background. Like, I would want to coach a female just like I'd coach my wife. Like would I want to cause like deleterious health effects for my wife or say my sister, like if you're coaching a female, like coach them like you would your wife or your sister. Now that might not go all the way for every man who's just like, I see some terrible coaching by like spouses. <laughs> so that might not be the case, but, but with, with just in mind, like truly caring for someone's like health long-term. And like you said, like that's not a rush within one year to see the most amount of progress possible set the expectation for your client of what this timeline looks like i think you will prevent a lot of letdown by managing the expectations for your client like like right when you first talk with them versus just trying to to disillude them to like that they're going to have this pro card in the year and like have this huge transformation Mm -hmm. like manage the expectations uh, that'll set them up for success with the the long term in mind I think a note to people listening as well, they should be asking those questions. You know, I think don't don't be blindsided by your own short term goals as well. Yeah. Like think about what you want maybe in the long term and ask yourself that question and when you're onboarding with a coach, have that have those conversations 
um, around maybe what your long-term goal is and then the effects or or potential sides of what you're doing because I think something we've spoken about before Hannah is like okay maybe what you want now or in the next 18 months isn't maybe what you want in 10 years and is how what you're going to do over the next year going to impact how you are in 10 years and I guess that comes back to a nice full circle of like the use of things like Femtest to um, to 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 give you a t- to to use for TRT saying okay well that's actually going to provide stable baselines and things like that so it comes nice full circle but thinking about that long-term health goal or long-term family goal or long-term maybe competitive goal and therefore helping that make your decisions today as to what you actually want out of this journey like in the future yeah I I agree um I think back to like when I started um my first show in 2018 no one said to me, but I also didn't ask the question of myself, like, what do I want long term? I jumped into a show three weeks out. Um, and did I at any point when I was like, I just want to lose some weight. I didn't think about what I wanted to be doing in five or 10 years time. But now that I'm in circles like this, where I'm having these conversations, it's very present in my mind. And that's why I'm thinking with that long term health. And conversations I've had with Ross recently, my coach, um, John, I think, you know, Ross. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he he was kind of like, yeah. So he introduced it with one of his females recently um, mm-hmm. where she was in a post show period um, and they could have waited longer to see if her cycle would have returned. But he weighed up that, well, do I want to wait longer and then possibly have more impact or do we just start things off a little bit quicker now? It wasn't her first time using Femtest and they know it had worked for her before. So out of that prep phase to get her into a, a health phase quicker, they introduced it. Um, and I think that's that's important as well. And another question that we've been asked about this health phase and the off season, like what is healthy and how do we know after a show, what are our markers to say whether we're healthy or not, especially in a female that potentially is older and has hasn't had her cycle for a long time. If she's not going to get that back, and that would be an indication, right, of health. But if you're not got that to play with, where do you where do you as a coach, and obviously this goes to both of you as coaches, like where do you go, okay, this client's actually now in a healthy phase, um, they've completed that and they're probably able to now push up into an off season. Yeah, um for one of you you brought up a a good point about like where females at when they come to you. Cause like uh, a young John could care less about health risk <laughs> and like the pro card was like, you know, blinders on. That's all I could see. Like, tell me what it takes. And the coach said like, this is what it takes. You're like, okay. Um, and it's a bit uh, naive, right? Like I, you don't know what else is out there. So you just trust the coach. Shame on me for one, right? Like you need to be aware of what your what your, the risks are. Now we have more information to be aware, like y'all are sharing too. Like get informed about what you're going to do. But also coaching a young female or young male, they're going to be far more risk adverse. So even though like you might assess them to say like see what that risk profile looks like for them, but you need to manage it to realize like the young person doesn't really know they want to have kids in 10 years. Yeah. Um, that changes. I have so many people that like friends never wanted kids. And then look, they have like three kids now. Yeah. 
So you need to like keep that in mind for like the young athlete that you are coaching. Um, you need to protect them from themselves a little bit, but still we have competitive physique goals. So, so weigh that in. Um, but back on the, what you're asking about, like where, where it is health look like um, it's, it's a very subjective term, right? And it could vary a lot for, individuals um I mean, hell if you had a disease state like health it looks a little different for that person but in, in general like we we're talking about for females i think for what we're doing the pinnacle of health health should be in a a state where we have low risk of virilization and the the menstrual cycle it really could be looked at a pinnacle of health like if you're having an ovulatory menstrual cycle Um, that's would be where you have, you'd be the most fertile, most able to have your, your best fertility that could be looked at like where you might have like a a health metric to go off of. Now that might not be possible. And let me explain like an ovulatory menstrual cycle is not just a bleed. Um, it's actually where you would have a, that rise in progesterone and development of of the egg to a follicle and all that process, uh, process occurring. So for females, usually like you know, you're, when you're pulling labs, like seven days prior to day one of a bleed, you would see that rise in progesterone. Usually there's a rise in body temp as well. Like that would probably be the optimal health for a female. Um, that won't happen for every female. So whatever that baseline is getting back to would be what we want to restore. Um, other health markers, of course, along the way, like your lipid panel, um, liver, kidney function, you know, all those we're trying to get back to within this normal range. In general for females, I've seen this thrown around uh, of like what, how many ovulatory menstrual cycles should you have in an off-season phase before going back into a prep um, with the goal being like, hey, you want some level of fertility present and also the protective effects that come with the ovulatory menstrual cycle, a proper estrogen and progesterone level rises. Um, I've seen people, some people say two, some people say four cycles. Um, there's not, there's not a, a hard number of where that even comes from, but what it's probably with good certainty is you want some restoration to that and be able to sit in that period for a time yeah. before you go into prep and lower it. So usually like when I see females post-show, like the first cycle that comes back is like this light bleed and, and likely not ovulatory then after that it kind of comes back fully then you want to hold that for a period of time so i could definitely say like probably the the three is a good number to go with before you move back into a dieting phase um also this would kind of be the red flag in off season for for androgen use like if you're using androgens and you don't have a, a menstrual cycle you see that ovulation stop that would be a time to pull back um but it's it's based on the needs of the client and the risk model, right? Some females, like I've had one female, she wanted to do a, a higher muscular division, WPD, and the time needed to have an ovulatory cycle and maintain that without androgen use was not moving her towards the physique goal that she wanted. And she saw that. And fertility was an issue. She said, I want to move more aggressively based on, you know, what's what's going on with all this. So that's what we did. Um, yeah. so it varies, right? Like the definition of health is going to vary for people. The definition of femininity is going to vary from, from people like what you think is feminine might be different from what I think is feminine. So we don't put that on our clients. Like, right. Mm-hmm. That's part of their assessment. 
I think that's something, Mads, you kind of talked about as well, that point of how long do you stay um, in that state and, and how many cycles do you need to have? Um, and Mads, we've talked about coming out of a prep, reversing out, spend some time in a health phase, and then maybe it's a three months off season. There's your three cycles potentially. Um, and then they're like, right, I'm ready to prep again. But if you actually look at that, you've had a three month off season. And it was a conversation where Mads and I, she was like, is this your first long off season? And I was like, yeah. She was like, so potentially in the past, you've had three months of an off season. And I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No wonder I'm fucked. <laughs> it's true. It's it's true right like and if you don't have that hormonal stability like through something like trt potentially like that's yeah. just going to be like the the need for the length there is just going to be like even more because it's going to take you longer to be to get you know from that from that position of like red zone so relative energy deficiency to then try and bring levels back to where they need yeah. to be sit there get a you know get a cycle a proper ovulatory cycle back hold it so it actually is an ovulatory cycle that comes back and you know every 21 to 35 days you get a cycle and that lasts a while and then you're like okay now I'm in a good healthy position let's rip that apart again like you know if you're not supported there then potentially that is going to take longer and there is the need I would say with a, a natural client to say okay we actually maybe need to take longer between seasons and understand that that may have an impact on your competitive like goal taking a little bit longer but you know if that's something you're not prepared to do then you will probably need to spend longer in that off season just for your long-term health to make sure that you can get that cycle back and we can you know have the impact of losing it for a short period of time then we spend longer probably with the cycle than without it which is probably a a good place to be for a natural client is to say I've spent more time having a regular cycle than not yeah um is probably, I would say, a good place that I would like to have somebody. And realistically, you know, coming out of a, you maybe have like an eight to 12 week reverse, it might take you to get your cycle back. You know, you're going to prep for six months. This is what I said to Hannah, you have three months reversing. You're going to have three months in an off season. Then you're going to prep for six months. So you have like three months of potential stability there if things become stable. A, A small opportunity to grow but as a natural athlete as well, that's going to be fairly limited. And then you're mm. going to pull straight back into a prep. So any muscle you may have built potentially is not even going to have time to like marinate. You're just going to be pulling that straight away. So it's yeah. like, what are you actually achieving by standing on stage every 12 months? Are you going to come back any different? Likelihood is not, not like, not like crazy. You're not going to have crazy difference. You might be a bit leaner the second time. Okay, great. Like you're not going to have any crazy physique changes. So take some more time to one, get a bit more healthy and two, actually build a little bit more muscle if you are in this natural state potentially and you will need that and I think people don't respect that maybe a little bit as well it's different for a assisted athlete I, I believe like you're in a different place you're in super physiological realms like you're able to build muscle and change a lot faster at a bigger rate but especially as a natural athlete like you're going to need time in that healthy state and also to secondary to that as a physique athlete build some muscle come back different yeah I think with with males, it does change quite a bit, like yeah. natural to enhanced for timelines. Like the natural male, you could argue that it aligns pretty close to the natural female. Like yeah. the durations of prep, the durations are off. So like everything's longer. Like if you look at how naturals compete, like you have to be very strategic of when you compete, because that might mean you don't aren't able to compete at all the next year. Now, moving to enhanced side, like for a male, 
it really uh, circumvents a lot of those issues to where you could have a shorter duration offseason and in uh, prep as well. However, for the female, I think it doesn't vastly change as much. It absolutely does change. Um, but what I do see is just the the fat loss rate could still be problematic. Um, yes. yes, you could put on muscle tissue, but without all the other restoration of the hormone side, it's really hard to keep repeating the fat loss process that even with drugs, it um, eventually bottlenecks those females, which if you look at like even the pro circuit, it's wild. Like we had an Olympia in December and now it's moved up to November. Like most of those females prepped all year long and then there's barely any off season. You'd have like two months and then you're right back in to always try to requalify for the, the Olympia, which could at that level, hopefully you've already put on the tissue and, a lot of these girls have, right? So the maintenance time needed isn't as long, but you still need time to restore the metabolic function and just get to a place of health to repeat that prep process, which with those continued dieting cycles, some people just keep getting worse. So you're absolutely right. Like you need to have some time where you can just be okay, not competing. And um, men mental and health as well. Yeah. yeah. Your mental health as well. Yeah. Like, I, like I finished competing in July and I would say, so I went into my off season and now I'm in a position where I'm like, okay, I can think about the idea of maybe starting prep again in July this year. But like, if I was to be like, oh yeah, now I'm prepping again right now. I'm like, don't know if I'm quite ready for that yet. Just because I'm actually enjoying being stronger, training, eating a little bit more, having a little bit yeah. more flexibility. And I think if you prep for such a long, long time, especially if you maybe do a pro qual um, an Olympia qualifier earlier in the year, and then you've got to do the Olympia in November, that time that you have is so long in a diet in restricted phase even if you reverse out a little bit and go back in you don't really have any freedom like your reverse diet is just as strict ready as your prep you might have a little bit less cardio mm -hmm. but you're not going to five guys every weekend so you don't have that flexibility yeah so that long that time spent in your off season i think even from a mental state actually when you go back into prep it's probably going to be more successful because you're actually in tune with wanting to prep and get to the end goal as opposed to thinking oh my God, I've got to diet again. Like, and and that, like, that want to get out of bed and want to work harder yeah. on the Stairmaster like, diminishes because you're just not motivated. Like, you're just not. I think I was, I did 138 shows this past year. And after every one, someone said to me, oh my God, you must be itching to get back on stage. And I was like, nope. <laughs> like, I, I'm loving off season, like, I actually feel human and and that's like attesting to what you're saying Mads like you know then when you're actually ready to go back up there because you feel physically and mentally ready and you're looking forward to to doing all the cardio and being a little bit hungry because you actually want to do it but I think a lot of and I'm gonna put this on bikini athletes specifically because it is one of the lower muscular classes that you probably can rinse and recycle it for a few years. But like you say, Mads, there's not going to be huge changes. Um, so you, you kind of do that. And then then in the more muscular classes, you might see, hey, Mads, for example, here, wellness, you're going to want to take some time out to really pack some size on between showings. Um, assisted or not, you, you're going to need some time there. Yeah, completely agree. That's like with Renee, why she basically took the year off too. just time to improve. You just have, have to have to have it and the psychological aspect for her. So there's no, uh, 
regret with like opportunity lost of like not getting on stage. Like it's more the psychological side of like, Hey, I just really need the mental break of not doing it. So that's a, that's a huge component. I think there's a pressure to always feel like you need to be in the spotlight um, or have relevancy or you're going to be forgotten. Um, But also if you're getting back on stage the same every year, like, and you're in the back of the pack, like, you're going to act very rough than either. So. Yeah, people are going to be like, why don't they just take some time away? Because they just mm-hmm. look the same. Like, go away and get better and stop turning up looking the same, not winning every year. Like, go away and, and make some improvements. 100%. 100%. Well, yeah, hopefully this conversation will be uh, tremendous for those that listen, huh? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think we've had loads and loads of valuable information in there. And although we've done quite a few um, episodes now with different educators each time and, and different coaches and specialists doulas um I think everyone has brought something slightly different to it um and your insight has been absolutely invaluable um and I think I can speak for Mads and myself when I say that we are really really grateful for your time on the podcast today yeah so so grateful so thank you I think as well it holds a bit of leverage obviously you've just um happy to plug your um, J3U module on female health so if people want to know a little bit more go go and check that out but I think this holds quite a bit of leverage in the industry in terms of talking about female pet usage um, testosterone use in females at the moment and coming from a place of um, experience in education and and people listening to this will hopefully it will resonate and and they'll be able to understand the the reasons for and against I guess for for what we're trying to talk about so thank you. Yeah, no, thank you both for having me on. Like, it's always humbling to want um, have people that want to have you just have conversations about this stuff. And again, this has just been my my journey to just try to get better. And that's what J3 University came about. It's like just if you want to learn how all my whys of why I do things and what I'm learning along the way, that's that's J3U. And I got asked so much for like female information when it's just not there. And I get all these females that come to me with all these issues and it's such a, such a problem in the industry with how females can get coached. So that's why, you know, what Luke Miller and I were like, okay, the female module, this has to happen. We have to like raise the bar for female coaching and um, make all this awareness, just like y'all are doing just awareness. So um, yeah, thanks again for letting, let me share some of this message and appreciate y'all having me on. Thank you. And lastly, as always, ask everyone uh, if anyone is looking to find you, obviously, Mads and I will tag you in this episode below. But if they uh, want to find you, get in contact, find any of your content, listen to your podcast, where can they do so? Yeah, I'm mainly active on Instagram. So at John Jewett three is my my IG Uh, podcast is J3 University. So you can check that out as well. And then, of course, my website's j3university.com, where I have the education platform. And if you want to interact with me more in that, Luke and I both are active in the forums and doing live streams. So as far as coaching goes, I I don't don't do much individual coaching anymore. I have some set clients that I've had for a long time. So pretty, uh, pretty set on that. But um, that's where you can find me. Everyone, thank you for listening. And until next time, thank you.